This podcast is sponsored by King Manual Therapy, restoring function to body and voice. Hi everyone, thank you so, so much to all of you who voted for us in the best podcast category at the Theatre and Technology Awards. We were so thrilled to win the award and it's incredibly humbling to have been recognised by the Theatre and Technology Awards for the work that we have done with the Industry Minds podcast. Thanks so much again everyone, it really does mean the world to both of us. Now, on with this week's episode. My name is Cathy Reid, and today I am joined by psychotherapist, counsellor and performance coach, Trevor Gray. How are you, Trevor? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. So um, those of you who were at our last panel event will know that Trevor was on the panel um, there, which we were thrilled to have him involved. Uh, But today uh, we're just going to be having an interview just with Trevor, which is great. So we always start with our word association game. So just the first thing that comes into your head, don't worry, as we said before, you can swear, it's not an issue. (laughs) So, Mondays. Uh, London. The district line. Oh, Gunnersbury. World Cup. Maradona. Shopping. Blue water. Summer. Sunshine. Social media. Rubbish. (laughs) Therapy. Great. English weather. Uh, Today especially, uh, very, very wet. Yeah, I put that in on the tube just because I was already absolutely soaked by the time I got there. It's a terrible day. For those of you who don't know, today was the Monday where it poured down. Yeah, you will all remember that Monday in June where you were not happy that you were not sunbathing. Yes. (laughs) So Trevor, let's just get started. Um, You spoke to our audience at the last panel, but for those who weren't there, can you talk us through your career and what led you to becoming a therapist? Okay, my career, because my, my career as a therapist is, is relatively short compared to my career in, in performance. Um, I started playing the piano when I was seven years old. Uh, I started piano lessons and, and, and did that right through till I was 16. Uh, hated it to start with and then grew, when I was about 13, 14, grew to love it. Had jazz lessons, which I, I really enjoyed and just wanted to be in a, playing a rock and roll band. It's all I ever wanted to do from, from age 13 onwards. So played in loads of school bands. Um, I, I grew up in Liverpool, was born and bred in Liverpool and wanted to get to London where the bright lights were. Uh, when my brother and other school friends were already in the music business, playing in bands and making records. So I got my ass down to London at age 18, did a degree that to me didn't feel like it was anything, but it was a philosophy degree. It was just a, a method to get me to London um, and started playing in bands and then early 20s started playing sessions. Um, my brother was a, a renowned record producer at the time, he'd produced people like UB40, Red Red Wine and things like this. So I began playing with him, I was kind of his right hand man for a couple of years. So I played on records with, um, oh god, Tom Jones, Kirsty McCall, um, Lots of other little bits and pieces like Genesis and uh, Duran Duran and uh, loads of little bits and pieces. But uh, we were often brought in as the guys to create a a radio mix, a kind of seven inch mix of something. So we'd uh, sample things in and kind of mess things about and and then stick them out there to kind of make it sound pretty, if you like. So I was the kind of uh, the polish kind of guy. Um, But then we we decided that we wanted to have our own band and we, we, we booked studio time that we were due and, and uh, grabbed a couple of old school friends in, uh, made some records ourselves, put them out on white labels, uh, got remixing people like U2 and NXS at the time because we were, we were kind of faceless techno kind of guys, all instrumental music and then Sony picked us up and said, do you do your own stuff? And we said, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they listened and said, brilliant, we'd like to give you a record deal, which we did. So we signed Sony in 1994, um, did four albums on them, were there for 10 years, and released loads of records. We, we had 10 top 40s in the UK, three top 10s, uh, loads of hits around the world. We, we toured the world, um, 
we wrote songs for Hollywood blockbusters like uh, Charlie's Angels and, and Lost in Space, Gone in um, 60 Seconds. Uh, we wrote the theme tune for the World Cup, the theme tune for Formula One on television. We did all sorts of stuff, music that was used on Princess Diana's Wake, just everything. Uh, Sony told us that we were the most synced band on Sony. So more synced than Michael Jackson or George Michael. So everything from our first three albums, every single tune has been used by somebody. Um, and, you know, big companies like Budweiser and Ford and Volkswagen uh, all used our tunes on adverts and, and things like that. So our music was famous. We weren't quite so famous. But our music, the band was called Apollo 440. Um, and I don't know, I got disillusioned after about 10 years. You kind of get disillusioned when you get dropped anyway. Um, and I got into my kind of first love, because I'm a bit of a, a Liverpool cliche and I'm, my football and music are my kind of first loves. So I, I, I went back to football and did all my coaching badges, as they call them. Um, started coaching, at, to start with, at semi-pro level and then at, at a pro level. So I was a full-time coach at, um, at a Premier League football club who should remain nameless. Did that for three years till I fell out with them um, because of the way that they were treating their academy, the young players, young talented players. So I set up my own soccer school to rehabilitate, if you like, these players that have been released and let go by, by the big clubs. And did that for five years. We had a TV show, for a ten-part TV show on the telly about it all. Um, and it became a little bit of a buzz until I realised that I was part of the problem, not the solution. I'd started out being the solution, but then realised actually these kids were coming to me for their dreams and their hopes and were relying on me. Um, and I kind of realised that actually it wasn't about how talented these, these kids were because they were all supremely talented, it was, it was a mental part of the game. And I, I look back at all my music career and the people that I'd seen kind of make it and not make it and fall out and become addicted and breakups and breakdowns and uh, all these things and, and kind of figured, hey, the, 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 there's something to this kind of mental side of things. So I actually started out thinking I, would, I was going to be a sports psychologist and actually started a, a psychology degree on top of my uh, kind of conversion degree and then realised actually this wasn't what I wanted to do, this was a science, this was about research, it wasn't about people. Um, and I wanted to be, get more personal and somebody who I'd worked with at the soccer school said you'd be a fantastic counsellor, you'd be a great th therapist. So I found out more and more about that, did my four years training as a psychotherapist, thought this is good and got involved and pretty much all the people that I deal with now are in some way related to performance, so they're either in the arts, dancers, singers, actors, comedians, um, or in sports. And um, some of them are, are, are kids, if you like, in academies. Some of them are England internationals. So, yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm now pretty much working full-time. Still doing bits and pieces with the band. We're doing a gig, for instance, at the end of this month in Slovakia, which will be fun. Uh, we're in Spain in October, I think, and uh, doing a gig in the UK in November, uh, if people want to check us out. Um, but no, mo mostly, mo you know, pretty much all of my time now is, is working in therapy and working with performers. Wow, very varied career, very exciting. So you just spoke there about um, how you went into um, becoming a therapist, because someone said that you'd be quite good at it. Uh, can you tell us um, how much training goes into being a therapist and the kind of hours that you need to put in? Oof. You, you do need to put in a lot of hours. When, when, I, when I started, I didn't realise kind of quite how thorough the training is. Um, and there's, there's, there's training to become a counsellor, which are normally two years training, and you do kind of a day a week. Um, for a psychotherapist, it's four years uh, a day a week. But it's not just doing a day at college, it's, it's all the extra work that you have to do. So. You have to do placements, obviously all, there's all the reading, there's all the essays that you have to write. Um, and then the, the more you get into it, you're dealing with as well. Every, every therapist counsellor has a, a supervisor. And if they don't, don't work with them, please. Because uh, ethically and kind of legally, you need to work with a supervisor. And the supervisor you talk with about your, your clients, always anonymously, but you, you kind of, it's to help you become a better, a better therapist, really. And when you're starting out, you're doing an awful lot of, th of supervisor hours as well as therapy hours and you're in placements. To, to become a psychotherapist, um, you need to do hundreds and hundreds of, of client hours. 
and hundreds of, of supervisor hours as well. So it's actually quite expensive when it comes to it. I thought when I started it, it was just going to be the training. It's like, oh, that's not too much money. That's about a third, even a quarter of the price it costs. So if you're thinking of, of, of doing that, it's great, but it's, uh, it can be expensive. Yeah. I was about to say, my other question was, do you have any advice for anyone who wants to become a counsellor? Oh, do it. Because it, it's, it's great. I find it you know, very, very rewarding. People say to me, you know, God, how can you do the job you do? You, you must be really terrible listening to people's problems all day. I find it really uplifting. Uh, and I find, you know, I, I love change. I love variety. Um, I love challenges. I'm a problem solver. I'm a, you know, I'm a listener. Um, and I like working with people, you know, week in, week out. Um, and, and seeing them change. I think that the, the change that people make in their lives is, is phenomenal, is, is, is really uplifting, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, very rewarding job. Yeah. And yes, you do have times where you're crying your eyes out in the, in the therapy session and even afterwards, and you feel like somebody's whacked you in the chest with a baseball bat sometimes. Um, you know, some people's stories are harrowing. There's no question I wouldn't you know, demean that at all. It, it's, it's difficult sometimes, but um, it's wonderful when somebody shares with you something that they've held inside them for a long time. That's, a, that's a, a great thing to see somebody come out with that and get beyond it and heal themselves. Yeah. So do you find it relatively easy to keep your work separate, as in not take it all home with you, or is sometimes it a little bit difficult? Um, and what, what mechanisms do you use to make sure that your work stays your work and doesn't infiltrate your own mental health? Well, a big thing you, you have to do, yeah, as I said, supervisors, you have to have a supervisor, so you have to offload to the supervisor, so this is what I'm carrying with me, this is, you know, please help me with this. Also, I'm, I'm still in personal therapy, and I think that's very important as well, so you're not taking that stuff home. So you are dealing with it, and, and, and things will come up in the therapy room that will hit you and you go, oh, that's happened to me, or, oh, I'm glad I didn't go down that far with something, or, um, you know, it, it affects you, it really does affect you. Um, I'm much more open now emotionally than I was before I started, you know, a, a huge amount, you know, my, my kids have noticed that, uh, for instance, you know, why are you always crying at the telly, Dad, and things like that? Um, because I'm feeling people's pain and people's, you know, people moving forward as well. It's not just the pain. So um, it, it, it's hard not to take it home, but there are measures in place. Having your own therapist and supervisors are the way that you kind of protect yourself. Yeah. So do you feel that your own experiences in the music industry and also the sports um, industry have affected how you run your practice? Absolutely, because I, you know I've I've experienced most of the things that people have have, um, have experienced in performance. Either going on stage to perform, preparing for, for performance. I think sport and the arts are very very similar. There's, it's all about rehearsal. It's all about performance on the day. It's all about you know you finding that bit within yourself. It's about getting over nerves. It's about projection. It's about acting. Um, whatever you're doing, you're, you're acting. You know you're becoming somebody else if you like. Um, I've done all of that from a, from a you know from a low level doing that thing stuff in school, on stage to doing it in front of you know hundred thousand people, five hundred thousand people because kick I played was five hundred thousand people, um, for the World Cup in '98. So France won the World Cup and we just released a record with Jean-Michel Jarre, which FIFA had used as their World Cup theme, and it was ITV uh, theme tune for the World Cup as well, and we opened the show for the for the victory parade um, in France under the Eiffel Tower. Um, you know, with that song, and I, I played the first notes. So, you know, you talk to me about nerves, yeah, you know, you try to stand up in front of, waiting two days um, to play the first notes in front of half a million people. It's all televised and it's all on film, and you know, you can buy the DVD and all those things. So it's, um, yeah, that, that, that's kind of heavy. But, you know, uh, from doing live TV to, yeah, all. I guess every, every, everything pretty much performance-wise I've kind of done and whether that's you know playing the piano in front of a you know a superstar um, you know it, it just you and them in the room to to perform in front of loads of people I think it's uh, I, I find it harder actually to play in front of a few people than to play in front of many many people mm. um, but also ha having you know having if you like made it having, having done it, have, having had those exciting times 
you know, meeting Michael Jackson and the Spice Girls and all that kind of stuff to, um, was it was it Jerry from the Spice Girls said to me, she said, enjoy it while it lasts, Trevor. So fair enough, nice one, Jerry. Um, but then it's kind of retiring and then if you like not doing anything, getting dropped by a record company, feeling a failure, certainly feeling the hit financially um, and all those things and then reinventing yourself and me trying to get involved in a world of football that I kind of knew very little about and being accepted a little bit in football. Um, and seeing actually, particularly retired footballers, the mess that they were in, uh, the absolute mess that they were in. Uh, no help, nobody helping them, agents, football clubs just dropping them when they retire. I guess the same thing's true of artists. Um, you know, I, I deal with a lot of retired players yeah. uh, who come to see me because they're in, they're in a state. So I've felt that, I'm able to do that as well. Um, but also, I think it, it's not only in the, kind of in, in the in the workplace, if you like. It's also personally. So, you know, things that have happened to me personally, um, losses that I've had, or things that have happened to me. You know, um, it's probably too. You know, I, I'd get back into a therapy session if we started doing it. But I mean, one of the things I talk about and I talk about with my clients a lot is is that I was at Hillsborough, um, the Hillsborough disaster, and I was at the the Heisel disaster before that. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of things happen to you uh, being at those two disasters. Lots of other things beside, but um, they're two things that are very close to my heart and um, very much spent, uh, I've, I've spent months and years in the therapy room talking about them and to my therapist, never mind to other people. So, um, yeah, you do bring stuff of, of yourself. Um, I know some therapists are very, uh, they're like a, you know, a Stonewall Jackson kind of, Thing where, they, where they don't say anything and they, they, they never talk about themselves and the client says, you know, have you got children? Because they're talking about their children. Uh, and they just say, well, that doesn't matter, it's about you. I think sometimes it, it, it's good to bring yourself into the, to the room as well and, and, and it's a relationship. Therapy is all about a relationship. Yeah, yeah. Most of the work that I do in a therapy room is, is about relationships. So it's understanding other people, it's understanding how people are relating to you. Um, are you expressing yourself and communicating properly? And what are, what, what are other people actually saying to you? You know, therapy is about understanding, therapy is about awareness, I think. I don't do anything in therapy, it's, it's the client. It's, it's you coming to see me, you'll do all the work. You know, even if you see me every week, it's, that's less than 1% of your waking hours. So the other 99%, you're out there experiencing the world, changing, challenging yourself, all that stuff. Uh, that 1% in the therapy room is for me to kind of, okay, can we challenge you, can we get you thinking, can we get you, you know, wondering what's happening and, and, and come back next week and go, okay, this is what I've learned, okay, how can we move that forward and forward to science? Yeah. It's mad that you say that it's le less than 1% and yet it can have such a massive impact on someone's life and someone's mental health. Um, why is therapy such a good tool and such a popular tool for people who are uh, dealing with mental health struggles? I, I think that the most powerful thing about therapy is that the person you're talking to is a third party. So it's not somebody who's you know, got any vested interest in what you're doing. It's not a colleague, it's not a friend, it's not a family member. It's somebody who can listen and also it's somebody who is seeing things from your point of view. They're only seeing it from what you're telling them. Um, you know, if you're talking about somebody else, they, they don't know that that's somebody else anyway. Or they don't know if they're kind or horrible or whatever, and you're, you know, so they're picking up on your experience of that person. So it's a third party, it's very kind of, a, you know, an objective point of view. And also I think that the therapist is able to challenge you in a way that a family member maybe wouldn't. A family member would want to be kind to you if you're depressed or upset. Um, and not that I upset people. <laughs> But is is you know it's um, you know when I'm in the therapy room I say to people you know do you want me to challenge you do you want me to be you know I'm 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 not here to be your friend I'm here to be your therapist so I want you to find out what it is that you're actually feeling and thinking and want to do not what I want you to do or not what a family member or a friend wants you to do or is feeling so it's um it's that objective thing I think that's the most powerful part of, of therapy and being able to listen because I think friends and family normally don't listen. And that, that kind of active listening, that sitting back and letting you talk, I think is, is a lot of what people say about therapy that they enjoy most and they get most of is that, well, I'm actually saying what I think. And wow, and is that really what I think? 
kind of thing because they've actually said it in front of a therapist. It's about building that rapport and trust. That's that's important to do that. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen straight away. Uh, and once you've built up that, that rapport and, and trust, then you're able to do some great work. Yeah. How important is it um, to find the right therapist and not just go with the first one that you meet? I think it's very important. I think that, I mean, there's that many, you know, modalities. Uh, there's a big word for you. Um, if, you, if you're thinking about going to a counsellor or a therapist, is, is, is have a look at different modalities. If you go to the, you know, the BACP website, that's the British Association of Counsellors and Psychotherapists, um, you shouldn't be going to a therapist unless they're on that list, because um, they're the people that are qualified, insured and, and have supervision and all those things, they're checked up on, so please, please do that. But I'm sure if you just get in Google, do find a therapist then, then, um, or a counsellor, that, that website will come up. Uh, it's called the Counselor's Directory, I think. Um, so have a look on there, and they'll have loads of different things of, of different modalities, so people who do things in different ways. Uh, it's also whether you want to do individual one-on-one -on -one therapy or do it in a group. Sometimes working in a group is powerful. Um, when I started doing personal therapy, I, I started off one-on-one -on -one, uh, for a year, then I did a group therapy. And I actually found in group therapy, I was more open, I was more honest it's like wow these are the people are sharing their lives and it's okay so I can say those things as well and hey when having said them it's like wow the world hasn't fallen apart nobody's called me a you know dot 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 it's, it's been um, it was it was uh, yeah it was enlightening it was it was liberating and then to go back to one-on-one -on -one therapy then and go okay right what do I really want to talk about what do I really want to get involved in um, was really good. I was a bit guarded to start with when I went to therapy for the first year. I was very guarded, mm -hmm. which I guess shows how how kind of messed up I was. Yeah, it is difficult though, isn't it? And that's something that we found since doing the podcast is a lot of people have said that they've gone to therapy, but mm. kind of were like, "Yeah, I know I need therapy, but I don't want to tell you this and I don't want to tell you that." But whenever, literally, mm. everyone we've spoken to who has done therapy has said that when they've started to offload it has made a massive difference well, to that's the what, health. Absolutely, and that's what you were saying about getting the right therapist. So mm -hmm. the right person that you feel comfortable in the room with. So that might be a man, that might be a woman, that might be somebody young, that might be somebody older. Um, it's up to you. Some people do therapy in offices, some people do you know, therapy in, in lounges. It, it, again, even the, the setting is very important. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of people I see, I go around to their house, and there's reasons why I go around to their house. You know, one of them, because he, he, he won't leave the house. So he, he wouldn't be coming to me, so it's like, okay, I'll make the journey to, to him. Um, and that's quite powerful, you know, seeing him sat in his own chair, and, and we've actually got him to move chairs now, which is like, wow, so that's one big big move. Um, it's always like, no, this is my chair, I sit here. So it's like, well, what, what would happen if I sat in that chair? And of course, you know, it doesn't happen week one, it happens, you know, 10 weeks down the line. Mm -hmm. But uh, being open and honest takes time, and to build up that rapport takes time. So. If you're looking for a therapist, yes, maybe interview two, three, four therapists, go and see them, listen to how they work, talk to them a little bit about what you want to achieve in therapy. So what's troubling you? You don't need to go into too much detail in, in, in the first session. Um, but and, and, and see what response you get and see where you feel comfortable. I mean, that's what I did choosing my therapist. I didn't just go to the first person that I met. Um, you know, it's, it's about you know, it's about interviewing them. It's about yeah. yeah. This is going to be a deep, a deep thing. Uh, it's also the reason that you go into therapy. You go into therapy for a few weeks in order to get through something, or are you going to therapy because you want to really find out the story of your life and and, and, and work out the way forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. if, you, if you're doing that, you need somebody very special, a very special relationship to build. We are absolutely thrilled that Series 4 of the Industry Minds podcast will be sponsored again by King Manual Therapy. Of course, King Manual Therapy won the first Healthcare and Commercial Enterprise Award at the Industry Minds Awards back in September.
make sure that you tune into next week's podcast as by next week we're going to have some amazing information for you from Stephen himself at King Manual Therapy about all the exciting developments that are happening over there at the clinic. All of the team at King Manual Therapy are absolutely 100% committed to getting their clients better and really looking after them not only in a physical capacity but also with their mental health and well-being as well and that is why we are so proud to have been sponsored by them for another series. So we did discuss this at the uh, panel event and obviously being performers, uh, freelance, self-employed, often money is a bit of an issue. Um, for, those, for those who weren't at the panel event, um, what are your thoughts on people who say that they can't afford therapy but really, really need it? thoughts wow it's i mean it, it, it's it's really sad that therapy is not more available for instance on the nhs um if you go and see your doctor and, and, and say that you're not feeling great uh and it's a it's a mental issue then you know you're lucky if you'll get six sessions of cbt um that seems to be the kind of you know the the NHS way, and, and nothing against CBT, if you like, but often CBT is, is, is a very short-term problem-solving kind of modality. I know it does more than that, I'm not, not saying it doesn't, but um, the kind of six-week sessions are very much on the, can we get your scores higher, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll do charts and scores and things like this, and it's very short-term work, it's very looked at short-term, that's it, the therapist only has six weeks to deal with you, then they've got to do somewhere else. But it's um it, it's sad that those sessions are not better funded and better available from the NHS. Um, I wish you know certainly talking performance wise, I wish that colleges and schools, um, universities, if you like, even football academies and everything had access to um, therapists for free, even you know for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know those things. If you go to a dance college, you know you've got access to physios and masseurs and, and things like this, albeit maybe you have to pay a little bit of money, but you're not paying the, the, you know, the full sort of outside rate. Um, and I think the same should be true of, of counsellors. Um, I think that would, that would be a real step forward. I don't think, unfortunately, that, you know, I mean, it's, it's all about budgets, isn't it? But I don't think that colleges and, and uh, universities and the like actually t- take mental health as seriously as they should. And that's my experience. I've worked in schools, I've worked in colleges, and um, some good experiences, some not so good. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's all about money, and now we haven't got enough money to do this, and we haven't got money to do that. I think it's actually a false economy, and I think that having people happy and being there and coming to college, especially when they're paying for college, is, um, is actually would work out financially. So, yeah, I wish they'd get more involved. If okay, your question now was um, that's me just having a rant. <laughs> I think if you know people, if you like, who are out of college and working and maybe not earning a great deal of money, what can they do? Um, some counsellors and therapists will do low cost sessions. I have a couple of low cost sessions that I do. Um, they're normally snapped up straight away, and I have a waiting list for those sessions. Um, and I very carefully choose people that I do that where I know they haven't got the money mm-hmm. to do it. I did actually my placement at a place uh, in Bromley that's kind of community counselling service. They had a really good system and they were super low cost. So if you were on income support, it was only £4 a session. Wow. Uh, retired people was £10 a session. Um, and if you were working, you paid a pound for every £10,000 of your salary. So if you earn 20,000 a year, then you pay 20 quid. If you earn 50,000, you paid 50 quid. If you earn 200,000, you paid 200 quid. Wow. It was on the thing. And they, they, yeah. they had people kind of, you know, it was down to people's honesty mm-hmm. of how much they earn. But um, I thought that was quite a nice system. Yeah. So you sort of pay according to your, um, your income. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know one therapist I met um, on my journey who, who said that they charge um, whatever the other person earns. So if the other person earns nothing, then the session is free. But if you're somebody who, if you're a lawyer and you charge 250 quid an hour, then that's what you pay the therapist. So your hourly rate that you normally earn, that's, yeah. that's what you pay the therapist. So it's like an hour for an hour. It's kind of an exchange of, of, of time. So I think that's quite an interesting um, way of going about things. 
But often people kind of say, you know, uh, certainly when they work with me, they say, okay, how much is it? You know, and, and people maybe don't want to disclose how much they earn and what they do. And I wonder how truthful a lot of people would be because they want to do it as cheap as they can, etc., etc. So, um, if, if if you can't afford it, I mean, there's. I think listening to, to podcasts like this is, is great for opening yourself up and learning more about yourself. Maybe in the future you'll be in a position where you can afford therapy. Um, the other thing is, is is maybe save up and do therapy. I, I, some people say to me, I can only afford to come and see you every fortnight or every month. And I say to them, great, go away, save some money, come and see me for six weeks, then go away and then the next, the next time to do it. I think rather than do it every fortnight or every month, when people come down, it's often just a catch-up session. And it's like, okay, well, what have you been doing this last month? And, and then, you, know, you spend half the session finding out what they've done. It's not therapy. And um, whereas I think it's good to work with people for a set amount of time, then go away, work on it yourself in your own life, and then come back. So that's the other thing, if you haven't got the money or can't afford weekly therapy, is maybe to do it in, in, in groups. Yeah. Um, but there are, there are loads of good self-help books out there. Um, there are other things that are a little bit low cost that, are, cost that are great for your mental health anyway, mindfulness, meditation, things like that. You can find out an awful lot of that stuff just on YouTube. Um, or you can go on a low cost courses to do that, weekend courses, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, but don't, don't just give up. Don't just say, because I can't afford it, I'm not gonna do anything about it, sweep under the carpet. Um, you know, there's some great books out there. Um, maybe three three good books I like. One's called um, Growing Up Again by Clark. Jean Ilse Clark, I think her name is. That's a great book about reparenting yourself. So that looks back into you thinking about your childhood and how you got to where you are. Uh, there's another great book called This Is Me um, by a Dutch guy called Koopmans, with a K. Um, and there's another new book that's come out recently called The Invisible Lion by Benjamin Fry. That's a great book. Went to a workshop of his a couple of months ago. Um, so there are all good books out there and they're kind of often there with kind of, you can work through them. There are little sort of challenges at the end of each chapter yeah. for you to think about. So if you can't afford sessions, maybe you can afford a book. Yeah. Mm. Or even try and buy them secondhand on, you know, eBay, eBay Amazon, <laughs> yeah. So th there are options and there are ways to get around it, but also to save for therapy if it's what you really need. Mm. Yeah. The, the, there is nothing like sitting in a room with somebody that you don't know yeah. and talking about yourself. Yeah. That is powerful. Yeah. And it's not something that you can get from a book or, um, you know, that, that, that there is something very different and, and, and even it's, it's difficult, you know, Skype and all these things. That, I mean, people are talking about apps now that you can get where you type in, this is how I'm feeling, and it's kind of, you know, a robot kind of AI kind of talk back. It's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same. I, I do deal with people on, on, on Skype. Um, there's a couple of people who I'm working with at the moment that I've never met. I've only ever met on Skype. But there's absolute reasons why they can't make it on Skype. Well, they can't make it in the room with you. Um, other people on Skype, I make sure that I've met them first yeah. before we start working on Skype. But there's people now on tour and things like that. Uh, I've got a guy at the moment in China I've met, but you know we, we, we talk from China. Um, but it's, uh, you know, Skype's okay, but it's not the same even as, as, as meeting people, talking to people face to face. Yeah, definitely. I think we should acknowledge from what some other people have said to us on the podcast is that therapy doesn't always work for everyone and it's not always the right thing for everyone at the at the right time, mm. but um, that the options are there should, mm. you, should you need it. Sure. No, you, you have to be in the right frame of mind to be in therapy. Yeah. Um, and so, some people, you know, that people have told them they should go to therapy so they're there and they're just not open and ready to mm. do it. But, uh, you know, it's about being open and ready Oh yeah. Uh, to, to, to be in therapy. I've said to people, it's like going to a dentist, you know? <laughs> if, uh, if they're going on your teeth, going, does this one hurt, does that one hurt? You know, if, if you're telling them no, when they're poking into it and it's hurting like hell, then, you know, the, the therapist yeah. can't help you, the, the, the dentist can't help you. Um, and likewise, you know, if, if you're tapping healthy teeth and you're saying, yeah, that's the one, then you'll just waste time drilling yeah. into 
healthy stuff. Uh, and often it's like, yeah, it's it's hard to say, yeah, this is the problem, this is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this. It's hard to admit that and open up and be honest. But the more open and honest you are, the more you, chance you've got of things changing for you. Yeah, for sure. So um, social media is something that has often come up in uh, our interviews over the last um, nine or ten months. Uh, and also how much of a negative effect it does have on some people's mental health. Obviously it can be used for good and to connect people and lots of projects wouldn't happen without it. Um, but there is a lot of focus on um, the negatives at the moment. What are your, uh, your thoughts on social media? I'm a word association, I said rubbish, didn't I? <laughs> um, it, it's because I, I, I deal quite a bit with, with, with young kids. I deal with, with people in schools and academies and things like this. And social media is just everywhere. And it's 99% of it is just negative. I'm sorry. Um, Everybody, I think, pretty much under the age of 18 who comes into probably even under 25, but certainly under 18, who I sit, I sit with in therapy, has issues with social media. So, you know, they've been bombarded with things, it's made them feel rubbish, it's criticising them, it's shaming them, it's, you know. Um, the thing is that the, the, the younger age group, that's all they've known. That's, that's, their, that's their way of communicating. People my age, you know, social media is kind of. Um, it's a way of getting in touch with your friends that you haven't met for, you know, for 30 years. It's not about, um, and maybe, you know, the people who need more attention, if you, if you like, than other people, you know, um, need more recognition, need, need to be noticed, use it as a method of, you know, mm -hmm. oh, notice me, this is my breakfast this morning, um, type of thing. Um, but but it, it, it's the kids growing up with it who don't, who, you know, that's their primary source of communication with people is a screen. It's really, really hard to talk to them. It's really hard to f for them to to think beyond what the words are. You know, a lot of the work I do is about relationships. It's about thinking what somebody else is really th saying, not what they're actually saying. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, it's the subliminal message if you like behind it. I think social media is so blunt and so, boom, you know, I hate you. You know, I'm going to come around to your house and pour acid on you. All these things that I see kids showing me on their on their phones, it's horrendous. It's 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 brutal. Yeah. Um, people say things and they think it's just kind of easy, but it's like no, this is published. This is said. Um, people send in, you know, photographs of other people copying, you know, copying photos, you know, embarrassing photos of people and the like, and then distributing it to everybody. And it's kids getting exploited by older people in social media. Um, I was introduced about six months ago to a, a, a program called TikTok, which maybe your listeners know about, and I, I'd never heard of it. I was, I was with a group of school counsellors, 128 of us, one person in the room knew what TikTok was. Um, it came from being called Musical.ly, which three people in the room knew. It's the most downloaded app of 2019. Um, it's now banned in Malaysia, in Thailand, in other places, because it's, 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 it's used by paedophiles. And they got it up at this conference, you know, page one of Google, type in TikTok, and one of the videos was the Take Your Top Off Challenge, because it's all about challenges to music, and it's full of teenage girls taking their top off. Wow. Um, parents don't know this stuff's happening. School counsellors don't know it's happening, so how parents? They don't. Most kids have got eight to ten um, different uh, aliases, and, and that, that's the studies have, have, have shown. You know, um, and kids have you know said that to me. They've confessed in the therapy room. Yeah, mum and dad don't know that I'm I'm on this app. They don't think I'm on Instagram, but I am. My name is this and that, and and I'll download it. You know, I know at the end of every week I've got to show my dad my phone, so I'll take it off my phone. And Monday morning, boom, got on the way to school, I'll download it again. And of course, my account's still on there. Type in my password, and I'm back on. Um, or even do that on a daily basis in school. They'll be on Instagram, and at home they won't be. Um, you know, kids do this, they're very, very adept at So social media is a way of communicating that's very false, very one-dimensional, even two-dimensional maybe, but it's not three-dimensional in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what was it, somebody said to us, you talk about analogies, a good one, it's like the difference between laminate floor and real wood floor. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it might look like it's kind of real, but when you actually get down to it and, and, and wear it, it doesn't wear well, it doesn't 
doesn't feel good. Yeah. Um, so social media is very very useful. It's it's very useful for performers. Um, at the you know the the talk that we had a couple of weeks ago, it was interesting hearing people talk about yeah you know it's about presenting yourself and you know having a presence on social media is you know it's kind of essential I guess now. You know um, whether that's a website or whether that's a you know mm. an Instagram page whatever it is. Um, you do need to advertise yourself, you do need to show yourself, but you've got to be careful what you do, and you are publishing things forever. So, you've got to be careful. I don't think kids know how to be careful. Yeah. That's the dangerous thing. You didn't. You don't as a kid. You grow up and you're not careful. I did terrible things as a kid. I was suspended from my school for things I did, you know, I wasn't the, the goody-goody that I, I was looked at. Number one, teacher pulling me aside and going, I know your game, son. You make the bullets and you make other people fire them. I thought, wow, he's right. You know, I'd get other people into trouble. Mm. I'd think of the great scam, the great idea, and I'd get somebody else to do it. Um, so yeah, kids do that, and, and social media. I'm very pleased that there wasn't phones with, you know, with cameras when I was a kid. Yeah. Because there would have been all sorts going on. Um, it's very dangerous. Every, every everybody's living their life now. You know, as Andy Warhol, they've all got their 15 minutes. It's all out there. Yeah. It's it's tough. Mm -hmm. So, um, just before we get on to our final question, are there any um, reoccurring themes that you tend to see with um, with actors, particularly in the industry? I think probably the, 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 the most common is the I'm not good enough kind of imposter syndrome mm -hmm. um, thing, which is, you know, one day I'll be found out. One day people, you know, my colleagues, my, you know, directors, whatever it is, will realise that I'm not actually that good. Mm -hmm. um, that, that I've been I've been winging it all this time. And people have a real real worry that people will find out who they really are and how untalented they really are. Which isn't true, that's just doubts in their mind. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, as you, you've heard me say before, but I, I wonder if it's the, uh, the emotionally vulnerable that get into the performing arts, or does the performing arts make you emotionally vulnerable? Yeah. And it's kind of a both, um, but it's it's particularly hard for people who who do both, who are emo emotionally vulnerable, and that's why they get into the arts because that's yeah. where they get recognition, that's where they get noticed, that's where people say they're great for a period of time, and then you know as as you know they go through training and they get rejected and they go to auditions and they don't get gigs and all these things and it's like oh yeah. and they're told that they're this they're that, you know, and it's um. It's for, you know that it really hits them, and it's like, well, what am I? Am I rubbish? And this is the kind of I'm not good enough yeah. stuff going on. So I think most people realise that. I talk with a lot of people about performance anxiety. I talk to a lot about audition technique and what's really happening, and um, you know the the idea that actually, you know, the, not getting an audition doesn't mean they're rubbish. Maybe they're just not right for that part. Yeah. And it's so so subjective. And there's so many people in the industry as well. It's so oversaturated that. Well, what, how, yeah. how many how many people you know what you get one in ten auditions one in twenty one in thirty you know you, you don't get one in two uh, if you do good luck to you yeah. uh, you won't be listening to this if you are <laughs> something it's it's um, you know it's it's you know so most of the time you're going to be rejected that's yeah. what goes on you know there's only one part for or whatever for, for what you're going to if you go to a dance thing and there's twenty places there'll be five hundred people in the room yeah. um, you know it's all those things so it's um, yes, maybe you do see the same faces getting the same jobs and all that kind of stuff. That's true of every industry that ever was. That's not just performing arts. Um, you know, is who you know and friends and, 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 and so one thing is to get out there and connect with people and, 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 and get chatting and get to the classes and talk to the directors and find out about them and, and all those things. But it's, um, it, it's about you working on yourself and you trusting in your own talent and your own training. Yeah. And you know, maybe if you're not, if you go, no, I went, I've been for fifty auditions and I haven't got them. I wonder what quality of audition you're going for, and are you really reading the brief properly? Is that really the type of job that you want to be going for and should be going for? Mm -hmm. But most of the time, it's just your face doesn't fit. Not that you're not talented enough. Mm -hmm. It's just they're looking for somebody else. They're matching you up with somebody else. You know, they want a certain height or a certain weight or a certain look. That's it, you know. It's it, and it's, it's not about how good you are most of the time. 
Yeah. I think if um, social media has been good for one thing, it has been connecting lots of people and also making people realise that it's not just them that's in this boat and it's not just them who's not getting auditions or not getting jobs or getting to finals and not getting things and that that the industry is so subjective and mm -hmm. only like 5% of it is on your talent. Like we, we just interviewed a casting director and they were like, if you're in the room, there's like a great possibility you're gonna get the job because we have 3,000 submissions and we have like 150 spaces to mm -hmm. give away. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, I think that's one thing to big social media up again that it mm. we realise that a lot of us are in in the same boat with this crazy industry. Well if you're gonna do social media, do it for real, don't do it as yeah. an act. Don't do the insta life where it's like, you know, you're taking twenty five photos and choosing the one and filtering it to death and, yeah. and all the rest of it. Take a photo and put it up there mm -hmm. and, and, and show you um, talk about your thing that not you know not this beautiful, wonderful life that you're not really living. Um, I remember going uh, with a, an old friend of mine to a, to a party and um, seeing him there and he, he was just sat in the corner on his phone the whole night and I was thinking that's a bit odd and went on a little chat with him and, and everything and then um, the next day, you know, all over Instagram, photographs of the party, what a fabulous party it was and it was like, you were just sat in the corner mate. It's mad. You, d you had a really rubbish night. Yeah. You looked really miserable. You didn't really interact with everybody. You took a few photos of you with a couple, but that was it. And yet, on Instagram, you thought, oh, wow, he's, he's rocking it. He's, yeah. And it's just not the truth. Take everything with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But be real. Yeah, be real. I like that. <laughs> so, um, finally, Trevor, we asked this question to everyone uh, at the end of their interview. Could you walk into a room today and say, I'm having a bad mental health day? Which room am I walking into? Any room? Yeah, whatever room. Uh, I can. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I realise it's hard for other people. You know, I've had years and years of therapy. So I, I can walk into any room and be honest. I, th I think one of the... Um, the true thing to me of therapy has, kind of, has worked or whatever is that you're... And we talked about being real, being honest with yourself. is for you to be an, an autonomous kind of rocking person so that you're the same with everybody. So you're the same person with your parents, same person with your family, same person with your friends, same mm -hmm. person with, you know, with the shopkeepers, whatever, on the bus, and you're just you. I think when you don't really care what other people think, you just want this is me, and, and yeah. you know, ac accept me f for who I am, and that you've worked on yourself and found out who you are, um, how you've got there, you understand yourself and your relationships with other people. I think it's easy to walk into a room at that point then and go, yeah, I'm having a rubbish day, or just go, guess what, I'm having it, I'm doing this, that, the other, and not really, not that you're not worried about what other people think, but it's just like, well, this is this is me, and accept me. Yeah. So, but I understand other people, um, that's why it's a bit, a bit of a skewed question to a therapist who's been, yes. in, who's been in therapy for <laughs> years, um, and who's constantly analysing himself and working out who he is. Um, other people, I, I, I know it's difficult, and, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's tough being real, it's tough shouting for help, which is what that is if you're coming into a room and going, I've had a bad mental health day. It's, I need help. Yeah. Um, if they can get that help and support from friends, colleagues, great. If not, please go and see somebody. Um, you probably know people, friends, who've been to see somebody, who've read books or know, know things about it. And as I say, it's easy to get on the internet, counsellor's directory, and tr look for counsellors and, and, and have a chat and go and interview some people and, and try and get some help for yourself. Um, but having one bad mental health day, feeling a little bit inadequate or whatever, is not doesn't mean you're mentally ill. Yeah. Um, or, or need therapy or, or, or um, anything like that. I think it's when it's, you know, people come to therapy, it's, it's when it's consistent, when it's really affecting your daily life, when you're waking up and, and that's it, it's mental problems, yeah. mental doubts things like that, yes, please go and see somebody. I mean, I, I say to people, you know, mo most people come and see me when um, when they've crashed. They don't come to see me when they've needed an MOT or a service. I wish people, more people would come and see me 
he was like, okay, I'm feeling a bit down. Can you help me? You know, can you pump my tires up? Can you can we check that? You know, give me a respray. Mm -hmm. um, they don't. They wait until the you know the tires are bald and and uh, and they're not putting oil in the car. And guess what? They're gonna have a crash. Yeah. And and you know yeah. Sometimes it's hard to put the car back on the road. Yeah. Fab, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, just before we finish. Mm. We're going to play another game okay. called Finish the Sentence. Okay. So, yeah. just what it says on the tin. Um, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is? Go to the toilet. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, a, I'm a gentleman of a certain age. <laughs> yeah. My go-to shower song is? Oh, probably You Never Walk Alone. Lovely. That's my, that's my go-to song. Keep it the Republican. Keep it scarce, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, my favourite flavour of ice cream is? Coconut. Ooh. Mental health to me is? About being real to yourself. My perfect holiday destination would be? The Bahamas. Lovely. Everyone should be more? Real. My dead or alive party guest is? Pete Burns. <laughs> From dead or alive. Yeah. Bless, bless him. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, and you, Pete. Oh. He's no longer with us. Um, he used to be the, the uh, record salesman at a shop called Probe in Matthew Street, where the cabin is mm -hmm. in Liverpool. And um, he's always dressed up as a, with scary wigs and scary, you know, drag that he used to wear. Yeah. And uh, he used to shout at us because we were, we were in, the, in the shop for too long, not buying anything. Oh, wow. Wanted to listen to records. I was probably, he was a little bit older than us, so we knew him growing up. Uh -huh. And uh, it was great to see him um, do things. We did a Top of the Pops with Dead or Alive, so yeah. Amazing. And I made a couple of records with other guys in the band. Um, Amazing. To Dead or Alive. Pete yeah. Burns, bless him. <laughs> and uh, finally, today I am grateful for? An umbrella. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Industry Minds. If you're interested in our counselling services, please email mary at industryminds.co.uk. For all other inquiries, please email info at industryminds.co.uk. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social media at industrymindsuk. You can find out about all our future guests and our future events on there. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week.